iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If you think Facebook, YouTube, whatever, I mean, these are kind of, if you're talking about empires and mm-hmm. history, yes. these are empires. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And thank God for business in that sense, because then otherwise, right, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page would be leading armies. <laughs> and then, and then that, that would be really rough, you know, Bill Gates, all these guys. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I am on vacation this week in Hawaii. Aloha. I'm actually recording this intro from the kitchen of our Airbnb in Oahu. Everybody's asleep. And here I am working like a sad sack. But you know, once the season starts, it doesn't stop. So on we go. And I'm very excited to bring you this week's guests. Yes, there are two. So there'll be two episodes. The first, this episode, I sit down with Ben Horowitz, and he is the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, the big Silicon Valley venture capital firm behind a whole bunch of companies you'll know, Instagram, Slack, Twitter. And I sat down with Horowitz in San Francisco just before I jetted off to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, company culture, why they skipped on investing in Uber, his new book called What You Do Is Who You Are, and the moment that Silicon Valley now finds itself in, assailed by governments and the public around the world. He has a lot of really interesting insights. He's The book that he's just written takes experiences from everybody from Genghis Khan to prison inmates and a whole lot of other kind of off-the-wall examples that you wouldn't think of for your typical corporate book. But it makes for for a very interesting discussion. I hope you agree. So without further ado, I give you Ben Horowitz. Um, So if you could just say something. Hello. Yeah, we're live. All right, let's go. So first of all, thanks for taking the time. Yep, absolutely. I'm excited. I wanted to just commend your courage it's a starting point for, as a prominent tech yeah. person in 2019, writing a book about company culture that praises Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Genghis Khan's underrated, so I felt somebody had to speak up for him. So why'd you write it? Yeah, so, well, really, for starters, it, you know, it's a kind of a set of ideas I'd been working on myself for many years because the culture and, like, how you create it and shape it has been the most difficult kind of thing for me to learn, uh, you know, particularly. And it was one thing that I felt like I didn't quite get right when I was CEO. And then also I didn't quite deal with it or I didn't really deal with it at all in 
my last book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. So it just seemed very important from that standpoint. But then more recently, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I would just say, criticisms of kind of company cultures, you know, particularly in Silicon Valley. That's all fine and good, but there haven't been any, like, constructive criticisms like the, the the ideas that people have about how they should improve the culture are always either fire the CEO or like have them get a liberal arts degree or some some just like yep. thing that doesn't really take into account how complex it is to get everybody in a large organization to behave the way you want them to when you're not there like that's a very difficult problem I just did an interview with uh, Stuart Russell and he's got a book coming out about AI and basically his ideas around how you basically engineer AI and it has to be kind of fundamentally rethought mm-hmm. you have to, with a different objective, which is, it sounds a bit squishy, but basically to help humanity. As opposed to a sentient being, is that the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just wondering, I mean, do you think there's, a, a, you know, that the, basically the, the way culture is built here, particularly in Silicon Valley, is wrong, for lack of a better word? I don't know, I say wrong. You know, like culture is tend to be specific to the task or the organization or the goals and so forth. So, you know, wrong is probably too strong. I just think that people don't really have the tools to get what they want a lot of the time. And so you get a lot of weird unintended consequences and side effects and so forth. And that was, you know, like a big idea behind the book. So if you think about it, it's like, and like, here's the thing that I think people not only in the companies miss, but people criticize and miss also, which is uh, from the Bushido, which is like a culture is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions. And the Bushido, just for people that don't know. Yeah, the way of the warrior, the yeah. uh, kind of code of the ancient samurai. You know, people say, well, like these guys believe in the right. They may not even believe in the wrong things or things that you don't agree with, but getting the whole company to do to do whatever it is you want them to do is is difficult. Like, you know, why does somebody work until like 5 p.m. rather than 8 p.m. or like why does somebody return a phone call that day or like you're not watching any of that like even the little things are difficult to get the way you want them you know let alone these bigger motivational things where their personal incentive might conflict with a company incentive or 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 whatnot and so kind of creating and changing a culture is really about like how do you get that consistent and cohesive and, you know, for different companies, I think it's different things. Like, so, you know, at Amazon, they are super cheap. And that goes with their strategy. They want to be the low-cost leader. So, like, they're cheap on everything. They put in cultural markers. Like, it used to be that you got a kind of desk that was made out of a door. <laughs> you know, Apple doesn't have any of that in their culture. Their campus is so glorious, $5 billion or whatever. I think the doorknobs probably cost $1,000 each or some <laughs> crazy thing. But that helps them towards their goal because they're trying to build the most perfect, most beautiful products, different cultures for different goals. So, like, I I try and stay away from, like, this culture is right, this culture is wrong. The big thing is, is a culture what you actually want? Like, are you being who you want to be or are you being something else because you just don't know how to control the company? Like, nobody's culture is 100% cohesive, you know, but, you know, there's a lot of variation. And are you confident... Or are you optimistic that companies can remake their culture? You oh, know, yeah. Amazon is really interesting, obviously. They're, mm-hmm. you know, now that I think there are 650,000 employees yeah. on their way to a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're getting a lot more... Different uh, types of employees, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of issues around mm-hmm. unionization and worker conditions in warehouses. And it's... Yeah. Bezos has always been super anti-union and mm-hmm. quite aggressively so. 
and then you have about hundreds of thousands of workers are saying we're not being treated well mm-hmm. and how do you remake right. that on the fly yeah so this is a great example of that so if you look at amazon i think people in silicon valley would say bezos has done maybe the best job of any tech ceo in the last 25 years of building a consistent culture and then on the other hand you have all the things you've talked about but also David Streitfeld at the New York Times who's like a really talented and honest reporter like so you know like like there are people who don't like tech or just go after him but like he's not that guy and he wrote this piece where like he you know found however many unhappy people at Amazon and you go well like how do you square that circle right and it turns out Amazon's got a culture that worked amazing or had a culture that worked amazing for tech workers, but not as well for, like, say, retail workers. Mm-hmm. And, and people had come from other fields and kind of had different life goals and different things. And, and this kind of gets to when you have a company that size, you may have, like, not a monoculture. You may have to have subcultures. You may have to have different kinds of things. You may have to have a limited number of common cultural elements and then things that are very specific for that kind of worker type or class. And I think they're running into that more now. But that's something that, you know, even small companies run into where like a little kind of enterprise software company, like the engineering culture is not going to match the sales culture. Mm -hmm. And if it does, it's probably a problem. So these are some of the things that, yeah, you have to consider in this kind of problem of cultural design. So basically, so should Jeff Bezos be a bit more like Genghis Khan in terms of because uh, I mean in yeah the no book, and, and 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 not y- to be but yes that's in the book it's all you use him as an yeah. example of how yeah. he kind of integrated lots of different people and religions yeah no absolutely I, I and yes I do and I think he is kind of like I think that's the way they're going I do think they recognized it I mean and I look I think the New York Times story um, helped them recognize it to some degree and 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 that's definitely. Um, where he's going now, how far they take it and what they do and so forth, you know, uh, is an open question. But um, yeah, for sure. And so you also talk about, you spent some time on Uber Mm -hmm. and talk about Dara Khosrowshahi comes Mm -hmm. in and kind of the new broom and remaking some of the cultural shortcomings. Sure. Column. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, and also some of the, you know, cultural strengths. Yeah. In the book, you talk about, you know, there's this new set of principles that he comes out with, one Mm -hmm. of them being do the right thing, period, and why basically, why is that not enough? Or why why is that a missed opportunity? Like, what is the right thing in business ends up being a pretty not obvious question in every scenario. So, you know, just like a simple one that all startups run into is, okay, you went to investors, you promised them you would uh, have this set of numbers, and then you're into the quarter and you're not going to make them. But you could make them if you maybe told like a little bit of an exaggeration to your next prospect. So like, is it the right thing to have like overpromise to investors or is it the right thing to overpromise to the customer? Like which one is the right thing? Oh, you've got an employee who you're firing, but, you know, they've got like a family, um, but, you know, you need the money. Should that money that you might give them as extra severance go to the employees you have or the employees that's going? Like, it's not generally obvious. And so just like do the right thing is a bit of a cop out. And you compare that, the, the comparison I had in the book was to you look at Toussaint Louverture, who led the Haitian Revolution. I mean, here's a guy, he's leading a slave revolt, um, and he's built this army, quite a remarkable army. Mm -hmm. It's the only successful slave revolt ever in the end. 
And the way you incent, the you know, big way you incent soldiers in those days is you let them pillage. So they go win something and they get all the stuff. Uh, but for him, like even though winning the war was important, it was even more important not to pillage. And he said, look, I don't want you to do that. And the reason is we're fighting for liberty. And like you can't get to liberty by taking people's liberty away. And the payoff was remarkable in that if you kind of fast forward, Toussaint, a slave, had the support in the colony of the white women over like the Spanish or the British or anybody else trying to take the colony to the point where they called him father. And so you go, wow, that's the power of culture. That's the power of taking a more ethical, a more principled approach. But you can't just say do the right thing. Like do the right thing to a soldier would be like pillage. That is the right thing. Like I'm getting paid. There's a lot more to it than just like, okay, the last guy was a bad guy. Now we're good guys. Where did Uber's culture go wrong then? Yeah, so like one of the things that I think gets undertold on Uber was just how good, maybe great is more the appropriate word, a CEO Travis Kalanick was mm. other than the thing that he made the mistake on. Yep. And like if you kind of ask people like in venture capital or other CEOs, they would say, yeah, like in the last 20 years, like he was in the top two or three. I mean, he was that good. Culturally, he was also quite good in that they had a very well-defined culture. Um, it was unique. It was provocative. It was exciting. And then they trained on it, and then they followed it. The problem <laughs> uh, was it had some missing elements. And in particular, they were they put a huge emphasis on competitiveness. And there was a lot of parts, you know, hashtag winning, you know, <laughs> toe stomping, like the whole thing. Yeah. Like they were going to be competitive. They were going to win. There's an issue in culture where, like, if you have a very, very strong kind of initiative and then no constraint on that, then things can get out of control, particularly as the company grows. So if you, you know, and the thing that they definitely did not do and Travis definitely did not do was he didn't make kind of ethics explicit. Like, where is the line here? It seemed almost purposely vague. Yeah, Yeah. that was, it was all, it was basically a non-statement. And one of the things about kind of ethics and rules in business if you're not explicit about them, it's often the case that every other goal, objective, cultural element can basically stomp on that. So like we have to make the quarter and we're not saying anything about whether we have to stay in the accounting law. <laughs> you know, okay, well yeah. then what is, that's one way to make the quarter is like we can fudge the numbers or we can do this or we can do that. Now they didn't do anything like that but the big case that kind of like kind of the biggest incident that really turned kind of everybody on Uber was this case of, you know, a young woman, Susan Fowler, comes to work. Right. And, you know, first day on the job, gets sexually harassed in writing, <laughs> and she submits it to HR. I'm sure that's happened at other companies, but what didn't happen at other companies is the HR person breaks the law <laughs> and says, that manager is a high performer. We're not going to do anything. Like, pound sand. And so how the hell did that happen? Like, it wasn't yeah. like Travis definitely tempted that person to do that. Like, there's no way. Like, there's no way he was happy with it. But winning, <laughs> that high an emphasis on winning, that high an emphasis on performance, and no statement on ethics and, like, law and all these kinds of things. And, by the way, the company was known to go around the law because it didn't believe in a lot of the regulatory things, yeah. just kind of set the stage for that kind of issue. And it's tricky as a CEO, right, because it wasn't like the 
board wasn't aware of how Uber worked. Like every reporter knew how Uber worked. Everybody yep. in Silicon Valley knew how Uber worked. And they, the board was just so happy that he was making them so much money until right, it felt like the feds were moving in, mm -hmm. <laughs> like they were going to get got. And then all of a sudden they became like super ethical um, and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so it was, you know, it's a little unfair how it went down, but, but that's, that's how it goes. Yeah. And do you, because it does feel like Silicon Valley is having a bit of a moment, kind of a cultural reckoning. And I think part of that is maybe these companies, especially the platforms, have become so big. So the holes in their culture or the way they built their companies or the way they do business are much more obvious and much more consequential. Yeah, well, and they're such in the spotlight, right? You have these yeah. very young companies. I mean, Facebook is 15 years old. Yeah. And it's the focus of the world, yep. you know, all of a sudden. So, like, there's very few young companies, like, in the history of business that would ever stand up to that in a great way. But, yeah, for sure, that's going on. Do you have a sense that whether it's Zuckerberg or the Google guys mm -hmm. are kind of up to the task? Because well, it does feel like they're trying yeah. to rebuild the plane in mid-flight. Mid yeah, so, look, I think that one of the reasons I used the Haitian Revolution as the first example in the book was it's – probably the greatest example in history of proof that you can change a culture because there's never been a successful slave revolt. You go, well, why has there never been a, like in human history, mm -hmm. like this isn't just a transatlantic slave trade or something like nobody, not ever kind of rose up and won and like created a new state. And so you go, well, why is that? And it really starts with slave culture, which is, almost antithetical to military culture because the kind of fundamental underpinning that you need in military culture is trust. Because like, if I don't trust the command, then like nothing's happening. And as it scales, I literally have the Byzantine generals problem, like nobody knows what's what. In slave culture, their trust is very difficult because trust is based on this idea of tomorrow. Like I will do something for you today because I trust that I'll get it back tomorrow. Yep. But, like, you don't own tomorrow if you're a slave. You don't own your future. You don't own yourself. And so this whole notion of trust is almost nonsensical in the slave culture. And not only did he go from slave culture to military culture, but he did it at scale that was, like, almost unprecedented. 500,000 people fighting in the slave army for the Haitian Revolution in the end, which is to give you an idea of scale largest slave revolt in U.S. history was 500 people. So mm -hmm. Toussaint had 500,000. Napoleon suffered more casualties in Haiti than in Waterloo. Mm -hmm. And so if you can take that culture, and these guys, you know, like his guys didn't even wear clothes when he started, to that kind of military, then, yeah, absolutely, Facebook can kind of close the holes that it has. And I think, like, Mark Zuckerberg, um, for all the criticisms he gets, has been, like, quite thoughtful about how to do that and you know he, he always gets hit with like the whole silicon valley gets hit with like this move fast and break things yep. which was like an interesting idea he had early on but he got rid of it when he, they outgrew it it wasn't like you know he didn't try to change things but you know like it's a real kind of challenge for them for sure their current stance is we're not gonna decide what's true and what's not in a political ad and there's like incredible fury over that but then you think about the opposite what if mark zuckerberg said Facebook is going to decide what's true yeah. and what's not true in a political I, Mark ad. Mark Zuckerberg is going to say, no, yeah, I don't yeah. like that ad, I like yeah. that ad. Yeah. And, and, oh, by the way, the number one person criticizing him, Elizabeth Warren, thinks he's out to get her. <laughs> and so, like, he's out to get me. 
I want him to decide what's true and what's not true in a political ad. And so, like, it gets to be a very – once you get into the realm of politics, it gets much more complex. Totally. But also, it's really interesting if you think Facebook, YouTube, whatever. I mean, these are kind of – if you're talking about empires and mm-hmm. history, yes. these are empires. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And thank God for business in that sense because then otherwise, right, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page would be leading armies. <laughs> and then, and then that, that would be really rough, you know, Bill Gates, all these guys. <laughs> As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In your experience, you've invested in I don't know how many companies. Does culture kill a company? can it oh yeah I, I definitely think it can degenerate and let me just kind of so here's the, the the classic way that culture eventually kills you know kind of old company when companies get kind of big and old um, and this happens often like i'm sure it happened at sears you know i've seen it like kind of degenerate at you mm-hmm. packard there's kind of like the core cultural element in business is that and it's going to sound simple but that people care like, I care about doing a good job, and but there's a lot that goes into that because, okay, if I work really hard, then, like, people will recognize that. And then more than that, like, that project will actually move the company forward is, like, a big thing. And then if that's going on, then people will care about their work and things will go on. But what happens as companies get large often is if you work really hard, the company is so bad at making decisions and so bad at recognizing anything that it actually goes to waste. So you're incented not to care because the person who didn't care and was on Facebook all day or like, you know, relaxing or whatever, they got the same raise as you and their work amounted to the exact same thing that yours did. Their zero work mm. amounted to what your hard work amounted to. And and you see that when companies start to lose it, like that's probably the first problem in the culture is that, is that people are literally incented for not caring. And in terms of the tech industry, generally, the ability to scale so quickly, do you mm-hmm. think these the challenges are more acute oh, and yeah. more urgent to address? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. So scale complicates things a lot because, and this is one of the mistakes I made when I was CEO, is like at a small scale, lead by example actually kind of works uh, for a lot of the culture. It's like, okay, you're the CEO, you're doing this, I'll do this. But like if you're Facebook size, 
most of those employees have no idea what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. Like they don't see him and so forth. So there's all these other kinds of things that will affect your behavior that are accidental. You know, a lot of the challenge is how do you how do you build the mechanics into the culture so that they scale with the company and, and kind of reach out and get that done? And it's, it's very tricky because one of the examples in the book is from prison, just to kind of illustrate how difficult this is. So I don't think anybody designed the prison system to be super violent, or that wasn't the intent, right? Yeah. Like the, the intent of the U.S. prison system wasn't like, we want this to be the most violent fucking place in the world and like everybody should kill each other. But <laughs> Shaka's first day in prison, and he he was in uh, prison for briefly murder. Briefly explain who Shaka is. So Shaka Senghor uh, was in prison uh, 19 years for a murder that he did commit when he was uh, a young young man, 19 years old. The story starts when uh, he comes out of quarantine, um, which is the kind of place they put you when you enter prison and mm-hmm. into the kind of general population. And so he and the other kind of people coming out of quarantine go into the recreational area. And day one, the very first thing they see is one of the prisoners walks up to another prisoner, stabs him in the neck, throws the shank in the trash, and goes to the chow hall and has a sandwich. I'm listening to the story, and Shaka says, that happens, and we're all looking at each other like, where in the fuck are we at? And I had to ask myself, could I do that? And I say to him, I say, well, what do you mean, Shaka? Because... Like, you murdered a guy to get in here. And he goes, no, that was a whole different thing. I was selling drugs. Guy came up to me. He got very hostile with me, jumped out of the car. He wasn't supposed to jump out of the car, started coming at me. I had a gun in my pocket. I reacted. I shot him. He said, this guy took a two-liter bottle, filed it into a weapon, decided was he going to stab him in the stomach or stab him in the neck? Was he going to wound him or kill him? And then... Decides he's going to kill him, stabs him in the neck, and keeps it moving to Chow Hall's sandwich. I couldn't do that. But I had to ask myself, could I get myself to do that? Because that's what was required to survive here. Mm-hmm. When you think about that, that's new employee orientation everywhere. People come into your organization. They see how the people who are succeeding are behaving. And they ask themselves, can I do that? Can I behave like that? Can I can do those I, Can things? I shank a dude? Yeah, that's, well, not necessarily that in a company. <laughs> but sometimes, metaphorically, you know, yeah, like yeah. if that's Well, like an Uber, for example, yeah, yeah. can I shank a regulator or whatever? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah you, know, you have to be careful because that's how the culture moves. Yeah. If you're not thoughtful about what that experience is going to be, you can end up with something you never intended. And and this is uh, this is why I thought it was just so important to give people some tools that they can use to start to understand what they're dealing with when it comes to culture and behavior at large scale. And do you have a sense that this is, I mean, beyond Silicon Valley, part of a, a moment? Because if you have, mm-hmm. I think it was the International Business Roundtable, a bunch of the biggest corporations saying this, we are no longer about just shareholder returns. We have all these stakeholders, businesses, mm-hmm. bigger and more important and more global than ever. We have to think more holistically about what it is to quote unquote succeed. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting there because a lot of the laws, right? Like, so if you're a company, mm-hmm. you know, securities laws, that, and, and you don't just own the company yourself. If you have outside investors, a fiduciary duty. You have a fiduciary duty to like generate to maximize their return. I mean, like that, you actually have a legal obligation to it. 
So I think if you're asking the societal question and saying, do we want to care about more than shareholder returns, um, or do we want to somehow redefine shareholder returns to include these other things, I think it's a question for more than just one company has been a little bit of the struggle with it, where, yeah, like, I mean, generally, the I think the, the original thought, and, and, you know, like, it's not even necessarily the wrong thought, but the original thought was, okay, like, you generate money for shareholders, you generate jobs for employees, and, like, that is the societal good. I think that people have different views on it, and we've gotten, with globalization, you've got these massive, you know, these companies that succeed bigger and faster than any time in history, and so that generates this very intense income inequality because you mm -hmm. have, at the same time, labor getting normalized globally um, as opposed to locally where, you know, it can keep rising with the companies. And so all those are in motion. So, yeah, now would be the time to go, okay, is that the right way to define a company? And like yeah. what it means, yeah. And we're but it's tricky to redefine in that it's a simple incentive now. And it's, it's super, super incentive, good, yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. very, this is the target to shoot at, yes. basically. So do you subscribe to the idea and that fact, there should be several? And in fact, shareholders get mad and sue you and try and yeah. oust you. I mean, this is the re people get mad at the super voting shares. But the kind of reason that Silicon Valley companies have, and it started with Google, mm -hmm. and the reason Google did it is, you know, Larry and Sergey did not want to take the company public if they had to be beholden to short-term goals and not invest in the future and, you know, kind of build new technologies and so forth, which is kind of what they a lot of the activist shareholders force you to do. It's like stop doing R&D, stop, you know, stop paying your employees more and so forth. They're like, we want to hire the best engineers, we want to pay them whatever, we want to build for the future. And so they kept all the voting rights for themselves. Now they get like, everybody in Silicon Valley gets massive criticism for that, mm -hmm. but it was to take a longer view of the business than, you know, it wasn't like, I want to be all powerful. It was like, I'm going to take a long-term view of the business because like I founded this, I care about more than just the money, whereas the shareholders only care about the money. It's a very tricky problem to solve, I would say, societally and then like in business. So I, I went, um, I'm not even arguing that it doesn't need to be redesigned, but I don't mm. think the redesign is obvious. No. There does seem to me some need to redesign kind of the incentive structure mm -hmm. or at least have three or four targets rather than one. Yeah, you know, and then, like, what does it mean to be, like, companies and countries, right? Like, is Google a U.S. company or is it an international company? Uh, you know, the employees are certainly from all over the world. The customers are from all over the world. It was started in the U.S. What's its obligation to the country as opposed to everyone? And that they ran in smack into that on this Maven project, yeah. right, where, like, they're, you know, in... They're like, well, the international AI community doesn't like it. Okay, well, that's something you never heard from a U.S. company before in working with the U.S. government. So, like, we're, we're into these different issues right now. We had Brad Smith from Microsoft mm -hmm. on a few weeks ago. And he was talking about this notion that people who work for Amazon, or sorry, Microsoft, he's the president of Microsoft, they're almost like, feels like they're citizens of Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And so they expect from the company values that reflect theirs, yeah. statements on big issues, kind of take a stand. 
And on that <laughs> yeah. issue of, you know, working with the Pentagon, they were like, very clearly, we're going to do this because we're a U.S. company. We've mm-hmm. prospered here and we have a duty to do that. Right. If you don't like that, then you can go work you somewhere else. You can go else. work somewhere else. Yep, yep, yep. And I personally agree with that stand. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see how Google got to a different, completely different stand. But it does feel just like, again, going back to that issue of scale, yeah. that these companies just all of a sudden being a CEO is a different proposition than it would have been in another era. Yeah, and then there, there, you know, there's this other question of like, is it good to have companies get to that scale? Like, well, clearly Elizabeth just, Warren says no. Or is that just bad? Well, yeah. then, but then the counter is okay. If you don't let Facebook have that scale and you don't let Google have that scale, who's the likely company to take over that slot? It's Tencent, it's Baidu, it's mm-hmm. Alibaba, and then think about Chinese law. And then think about the reign, the control the Chinese government has over the Chinese companies. It's much, much stronger. And so whatever you think about Mark Zuckerberg, I think he's going to respect your privacy far more than Xi Jinping, you know, particularly as it comes into real issues of surveillance and, you know, harvesting your organs and other kinds of things. Although I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to get, like, captured and thrown in jail. <laughs> So, several of the kind of the people that you profile in the book as kind of models, mm-hmm. Genghis Khan, I can't pronounce the French guy's name. Oh, Toussaint Louverture, yeah. There you go. Uh, and Shaka, they're all kind of outsiders. And part of the virtue of, or one of their strengths is that they are outsiders. They came from nothing or came from outside the kind of mm-hmm. traditional power structures. So when they got into power, they could rethink it. You rethink it and see things that others didn't. Mm-hmm. So. In venture capital, why is it so white and male? Yeah, so, I mean, and I, it's hard for me to speak for other people's firms because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not so white and male. Look, I think some of it is all kind of break down the kind of the broader issue of inclusion. Like if you look at our firm, and I think it's easiest because it's so easy to criticize other mm-hmm. people. Like, But if you look at the kind of basic dynamic of hiring the average manager or the typical manager, almost any manager, if not trained in some other way, is going to profile to themselves. I know what I'm good at. I know how to test for it in an interview, and I value it highly. And so I'm going to hire people who can do what I can do. And like, and then I'm in this position because like people like my work. So it's just very logical. And so if you look at our firm, you know, in the beginning – we had uh, Frank Chen, and he was running um, his group, the research group, and everybody in that group was Asian. We had um, me hiring the GPs, and I had been a CEO, and everybody was like a CEO. And we had Margaret running marketing, and everybody was a woman. And we had like Scott Cooper running his stuff, and everybody was an investment banker. And it was just kind of like people were hiring to themselves. And you know, we were small, and I kind of ended up asking myself, this question, I'm like, okay, um, I got to find out why this is. <laughs> uh, so I went to Margaret first, and I'm like, Margaret, what is it in your profile? What is a criteria where no men are, can get the job? Like, why don't they qualify mm-hmm. in? And she said, helpfulness. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting, because I don't know any helpful men. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> I can totally see how you'd end up with a team of all women. But it was kind of a more striking comment to me, because we were a venture capital firm, which is a services firm. Mm -hmm. So who in that firm would you not want to have that trait of helpfulness, that skill 
of how do you anticipate somebody's needs? How do you figure out what they want before they want it? Like we needed everybody to have that. But if you went through our, sorry, go through our profiles and like nobody is testing for helpfulness other than Margaret. And so you go, okay, wow. That is kind of the core of the issue that we couldn't see the talent. Blind to like a very important skill that we needed in the firm. And so then you have to start asking yourself, well, okay, like what else is like that? And it turns mm -hmm. out there are quite a few things like that. And so we ended up changing our process to have people from different backgrounds look at the job profiles so that we could broaden the criteria to get to a criteria where we got the skills, not like so that we got the colors and the genders we wanted, but yeah. the skills we wanted. And if you look at the firm today, you know, whatever, we're like 50, I think we're 51% women, and then we're, um, I think, 22% black and Hispanic. And then, like, if you look at the GPs, we've got, like, I think we've got four women now, and uh, I think four people of Asian background, two people of Hispanic background, and so forth. And there's three or four Jews, and then there's a bunch of, like, whatever, white Protestant men, like, kind of thing. And so, but like that's not really the interesting thing. The interesting thing is we don't have a diversity department. We don't have uh, quotas or targets or anything like that. Um, that's just the way it went. And, you know, for me, if we're getting, if we're seeing the talent and mm -hmm. understanding it and getting the people in who should come in, then I don't even care if we're like 90% women or like 80% like African American or you know, 75% Asian or whatever, like that's all fine with me too. I just want to make sure that we can see the talent and then we get to the best talent pool. And that was the Genghis Khan approach. I think that what's happened in Silicon Valley is nobody's doing that. And white male is a little like inaccurate because I think that the people who got to Silicon Valley, I'll tell you a story on the people who got mm -hmm. to Silicon Valley first. So when I was a product manager at Netscape in 95, I got a call from Jerry Kaplan, who was a founder at Go. And he goes, Ben, I'm worried about the Internet. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you worried about the Internet, Jerry? He's like, well, I've been studying the demographics. And the only people on the Internet are Jews, Chinese, and Indians. <laughs> and if you look at venture capital today, that's actually like who's doing it and kind of who's building these yeah. companies and so forth. You know, a lot of it comes down to people. I think the strong force is people profiling to themselves. I think the my belief is almost everybody is – let me say bias because racist and sexist are two loaded words, but like people have real biases. But I think the strong force is they can see talent that looks like them and that comes from their background. You know, oh, you went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. Oh, you studied this course. I took that class with that professor. Da, 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 da. Like that's easy to see. I know what that is. I, yep. I, I can deal with that as opposed to having to do the work to see things that you don't have. A lot of my point in the book is it's very powerful when you can see things that you don't have. So my friend Steve Stout was um, president of Sony Urban Music. One day I go to, he says to me, he's been, mm -hmm. you know, I was president of Sony Urban Music. And I'm like, yeah, Steve, I knew that. And he goes, no, 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 like, but we called it Sony Urban Music because it would have been racist to call it Sony Black Music. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of silly. And he's like, no, no, no. What was really silly is because we called it urban music, I wasn't allowed to market in like rural areas. Like there's no black people living in rural areas. And I go, wow, that's stupid. And he goes, no, no, you're not even listening to me, Ben. Listen to me. I was president of Sony Urban Music. I had Michael Jackson. 
What white people don't like Michael Jackson? It wasn't fucking black music. It was music. Yeah. Why are we putting it into the category? And, you know, he said that to me, and I was like, well, you know, like what we have in Silicon Valley is urban HR. The diversity team is actually urban HR. It's this weird side door that puts people in a category that they don't belong into. And then once they get in, they have to, like, reprove themselves because they went in this weird side door and not the right. regular door. And so the bigger problem that we have in Silicon Valley than the numbers is that if you come from a different background, oftentimes you don't even feel like you belong in the company. And in fact, the way people get to their numbers, they make it hard after the fact. The epilogue of that story and why it's so important and why it's so important for competitiveness is you fast forward to today when streaming, so you get rid of the urban section, the record store, and the urban marketing and the urban department and all those things. That music, black music, it's like 92% mm -hmm. of the top 100 songs. It's all music. Like, it's dominating. And the only thing that prevented it from doing was the diversity department. Killed or squeezed the category into being dramatically less productive than it would have otherwise been. It was also just people understanding what hip-hop was and it coming up. And Well, I mean, why didn't they understand? Because it wasn't in their radio station. It wasn't in their part of the store. It wasn't in, like, because it, it wasn't for them. Mm. It was only for black people. I mean, that's the core of the issue that we have is that, like, we try to categorize people rather than try and understand them. And, like, yes, to listen, you're right. You have to understand what hip-hop is. You have mm -hmm. to kind of take the time to understand the art form. But that, it doesn't mean you can't understand it because you're white. It just means you can't understand it because you haven't tried. And I think that's what we do with talent. We don't understand it because we haven't tried to understand it. And so we default to what we do understand and that's, this is the biggest, this is by far the core issue with inclusion. And I think a lot of the solutions just exacerbate it because they're urban music. Bringing it full circle to the kind of culture of Silicon Valley, how connected is that funnel of talent to the issues that the, the industry is facing now with not being able to see around the corners that if you had a different people, set of people in a room would be like, ooh, this is going to be a problem. You should think about this differently. Yeah, so some of it I, I do think is tricky, though. I, I mean, like, like I, I think there's no question that if you have a broader lens on talent, you're going to get broader thinking, you're going to get more and better talent, you're going to get capabilities that you don't have. Having said that, I don't know how much of this was avoidable in that. Just like, let's just talk me new media. The radio came out. That got Hitler elected. I think no question that got Hitler elected. It was the Facebook of the It was 30s. the Facebook of the day. TV came out, it got Kennedy elected, like almost without question, Nixon would have won if it wasn't for television. And so that's what happens when you have a new media. So like to, for me to go, well, like we could have anticipated that was hard. And like, and interestingly, like Facebook got Barack Obama elected. It also got, yeah, it got, them both, it got, us, <laughs> both, it got us both of them. Yeah, it got us <laughs> and Trump. Um, and people only got mad, you know, when it was Trump, interestingly, but you know, that's the way it goes. So I think it was hard to anticipate because, like, Facebook watched Barack Obama get elected. That was the power of Facebook. And everybody wrote about it, too. Like, it wasn't like it was mm -hmm. a secret. And so if you're Facebook, I don't care, like, what color or gender you are. Like, that's going to be kind of hard to figure out that that thing that's not only okay, but people were like, yay, yep. bravo, Facebook, amazing. <laughs> you got this guy elected, was going to flip on you you know, that fast to, 
you're the devil, you must be broken up into little pieces and shut down. So yeah, so like, I mean, you know, like we can go back and say like, maybe, but I, I think some of these issues are very specific to the times and the way people communicate are changing and like how different it, it has been generationally from, you know, one to the next. So, you know, some of it is just the speed of technology too. I think that's probably the, the stronger thing that's making it challenging and the adoption of like we've never had technologies adopted at this rate no um, like in the history of humanity so it's just a, a thing we're all dealing with and grappling with one of the uh, i would say key points in my book or one of the things i really tried to do was kind of get out of this good versus evil whatever elizabeth warren good mark zuckerberg yeah. evil or this and that and the other and it's well really i mean you call genghis khan a master of inclusion <laughs> yes. which is not something most people think about when they think about genghis khan right exactly but i think we have to kind of go back to like the uh you know the greek tradition and you know it's 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 humans against the gods it's it's the system that we've created that has kind of come to rule us and like mm -hmm. how do we deal with that as opposed to just trying to pick a bad guy because you can pick a bad guy but like it doesn't solve anything to like string them up it doesn't the chance of that changing anything i think are very low and when you're see a company and they come to your door and say yeah. andreessen horowitz we want a bunch of your money how important is culture and how or in other words how do you see that yeah and look and that's tricky i don't want to you know act like I'm a guru on a lot of the companies, most of the companies we invest in are very early on. So they, yeah. you know, they don't have much of a culture yet. Well, I guess my, I'll, start with, I'll phrase this question a different way. Yeah. If they have a great product and a clearly shitty culture, or they have a <laughs> shitty product or let's say an uh, early, and an a really great culture. So the, the, probably the decision that cost us the single most amount of money since we've been a firm was we had the Uber B round and we passed on it. Which was um, must have, what they were must have been valued at what? Uh, it's about three hundred million. Yeah. So like you think about that, like, yep. even at today's price, yep. low, low, whatever, fifty billion dollars. Like that was a lot of money to lose. And you know, it's not the only time we made a decision like that, but it's uh, you know. And and what I was think, the decision, or why was so it? in the negotiation? Travis kind of, at least in our perception, and you know, may, I think his perception may have been different. Just like retraded the deal many times to mm -hmm. the point where like. It was really hard to understand like what was true and what was not. And I, I would, you know, blame this on me as much as anybody is like our kind of one rule or one rule on that at the firm is like, look, if you're deceptive with us, we just have to assume that you're like gonna be deceptive, yep. period. And that's something that we get very nervous about being behind because of the way we work and that, you know, we recruit people into these companies, we connect them to our corporate partners, we do these kinds of things. You know, we just got uncomfortable and like we end up, you know, like it, it didn't close. It definitely cost us a lot of money, you know, and it's hard to say like how much of what we saw was real versus like, you know, because in retrospect, like I don't think the things that caused Uber the troubles were that. But we do, you know, like that's the, you know, th that's probably the one cultural thing that we will like walk from a deal on every time just because it's too different than how we see yeah. the world and, and too incompatible with us. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Ben for sitting down to take the time to chat. You will not see any of my work in the Sunday Times this weekend because I'm not working. But anyhow, otherwise you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can find me on the website most weeks at thetimes.co.uk and if you are digging this podcast please take a moment 
go to Apple Podcasts, give a rating and review. Helps other folks find the show, which is good. So that's it. Until next time. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.